that's out of the way. But I'm still not yet ready for us to go to Esther 4, which is what we're going to go do today, because of the fact that I also need to explain to you, as we start with this, our, our series, Stars with Scars, that we are looking at Esther today, but we're going to start right in the middle of the book, which is a real challenge uh, if you're not very familiar with Esther. And so I'm going to do my best here, and this is why I have to preach so long. I'm going to do my best here to, uh, to tell the story in the first three chapters of what happens with Esther. So the Babylonian Empire uh, went in and they took over uh, Israel. And there were some of the elite who they took into exile uh, because they wanted some of the smarter Israelites, if you will, to come be a part of things and then probably have an influence in the rest of Israel. Well, uh, like all empires, it did not last. And so the Persian Empire came in and they took over from the Babylonians and they allowed the Israelites who had been in exile to go back home. But not all of them went home. Some, for whatever reason, decided to stay. And they stayed in the Persian Empire. Now, this was the time uh, when King Ahasuerus, also known as King Xerxes, uh, was uh, leading the, the, uh, the empire. So he decided to have a seven-day party. And as you can imagine, I don't know if you've ever been to a seven-day party, uh, but as you can imagine, um, that's quite the party. And so they were there, and they were partying, and they were partying, and they were partying, and we're told towards the end, when he was, as scripture says, because it's very polite at times, when he was merry with wine. <laughs> he wanted Queen Vashti to come and visit him. In other words, he wanted them to come and almost to kind of be an entertainment, right? To put her up in front of all the friends that he had at his party. And Queen Vashti said no, which you probably realize was a very dangerous thing for her to do. It's quite the surprise, actually, that she wasn't just killed immediately. But that, of course, that caused everyone to be of great concern. They were worried. Well, no, we can't let this, uh, this wife of yours say no, right? Because what else will happen? Other wives will have some of their own ideas, right? And so there was great consternation. And so Queen Vashti then was no longer the queen. But the king wanted a queen. So we had to have some kind of contest in order to say who's going to be the next queen, well, at the same time, some of those Jewish people who had stayed behind, two of them, one of them was named Mordecai, and one of them was named Esther. And Esther was an orphan. We're not told why, but she didn't have, her parents were no longer alive. But she had Mordecai, who was a cousin, an older cousin, like an uncle, perhaps, or like, certainly like a surrogate father. And Esther was one of these queens, or one of these women, I should say, who went forward to say, should I be the queen? And sure enough... The king chose Esther. Now, Mordecai told Esther, do not tell anyone that you're Jewish. So she didn't. So she became the queen. And it's been about five years now that she's been the queen. And during this time, please don't get lost. I know it's confusing. Another guy by the name of Haman is working his way up into the king's court. And he kind of becomes the right-hand man for the king and he's going out one day, and Mordecai, the cousin, the kind cousin, does not bow to him, does not treat him like he thinks he should. And Mordecai is very, excuse me, Haman is very angry about that. But Haman is so angry that he doesn't just want to do something to Mordecai. He wants to do something to all of his people, to all of the Jews. And so he hashes up this plan. And sure enough, the king agrees to it. That's an edict where all the Jews are going to be killed. 
very last verse of the third chapter, I think, is important to hear because it sets forth this incredible juxtaposition. It says, the king and Haman sat down to drink. You get the picture? But the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. We were on the brink of a pogrom, as they would say, when all the Jews are about to be killed. Which brings us to Esther 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed, she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. And Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and charge her to go to the king to make supplication to him and to entreat him for her people. Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a message for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death. Only if the king holds out the golden scepter to someone may that person live. I myself have not been called to come into the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. And after that I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.
God, speak to us through this passage this morning. May we have the ears to hear. May our hearts be humbled in such a way that we would hear you. May the words, my mouth, and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. The scene opens with a demonstrable uh, sign of grief that Mordecai has. You know, uh, people from the Middle East continue even to this day to express their grief in a much more demonstrative and public way than we do. Uh, oftentimes, we in the West seem to be a bit more dignified. We don't want, you know, we don't want people, we're afraid for them to see our pain. And so oftentimes, we do it uh, behind closed doors and in a more subtle way. But not, uh, not the people of Mordecai. And Mordecai is there, and for good reason, he is uh, demonstrating a great and immense amount of grief, sackcloth. And ashes, we are told. But he only goes up to the city gate. He's not allowed to actually go inside. It's a law that nobody can go inside when they're mourning in such a way, which is kind of fascinating. Joyce Baldwin suggests that there's a good chance that the reason for this is that the king did not want to have to be let down or be put in a bad mood because of someone else's sadness. The king, with great intentionality here, is very isolated. I mean, who wants to be sad by having to see the grief of others when you can just sit as he was with Haman, having a drink in the luxury of your own home? So he's not allowed to go any further. Mordecai is probably also there because he realizes that if he goes right there, that Esther will hear what is happening. And sure enough, she hears exactly what's happening, and she is distressed that Mordecai is there. And so she quickly sends him clothes. Now, we don't know for sure why she is so distressed. Is she distressed because of the fact that she loves Mordecai, and she doesn't want to know that he's so sad? Or is she distressed because she's kind of embarrassed that Mordecai is just there with sackcloth and ashes? It's a little strange that she doesn't first say, hey, what's going on? Uh, but rather she just quickly says, oh, send him clothes so that, so that he'll put some regular clothes on. We don't know for sure. In fact, well, the interesting thing about Esther, the book of Esther, is that it is full of these ambiguities. It is full of these kind of questions that likes to ask questions that it doesn't necessarily give answers to. You may know this already, that Esther is the only book in all the Bible that never mentions God. So there is this kind of strange fuzziness many times, a nebulousness about it. But one of the good things about that is the ambiguity, it helps us to feel more of what's going on in this. It unsettles us. Not everything is crisp and clean, all nice little neat answers. There's lots of perplexion about what's going on in the story. But what is also very clear and interesting about this is that Queen Esther has absolutely no idea of what is going on. It is yet one more example of the isolation that occurs oftentimes due to one's position or power or wealth. That when one has position or power or wealth, they oftentimes are isolated from the realities of the vulnerability and the vulnerabilities that so many others may be experiencing. Now, you don't have to be a preacher to know that it's not a far leap on this one to say, here is at least one application. 
It's the application that we've talked about many times before, which is that we must always be mindful of how the wealth that, that most of us have, the power that most of us have, the positions that most of us have, if left to their own devices, will always isolate us from those who are struggling, from those who are vulnerable, from those who are poorer than us. Now, we don't like to hear that, right? Even though we bring it up with some frequency, we don't like to hear it. And I bring it up uh, with some, you know, some consistency for a couple of reasons. One of those, of course, is it's like what we said about wealth. This is never a one time you hear it and then you just learn it, right? Again, what was the example I gave? It's like doing push-ups. You can't do push-ups one time and think, I have that muscle memory now, and all of a sudden you just start getting stronger and you never have to do a push-up again. No, you have to constantly, we must continually, it's a spiritual exercise, remember the tendency that occurs when one has wealth, the tendency that occurs when one has power, and that is always to isolate. The other reason, of course, that we're oftentimes defensive is that we think perhaps that I or others are saying that you're like the king, and you've actually like built it in. I want to live here so that I'm completely isolated. I don't want to think about anybody else that is poor or struggling. I don't want to have to do any of that. And I am not suggesting that most of us are king, but I am suggesting that if we are not careful, most of us can easily become like Queen Esther who did not intentionally set out to not know what is going on in the rest of the world around her, even just outside of the walls, but simply because of the fact that she is isolated as she is, she just will not know what is happening. And we believe that we have a call to know what is going on outside of our walls. We believe that Jesus teaches us, of course, to care for the poor, to care for the needy, to care for those who are struggling. And so we must always remember that the tendency of wealth, it may not be intentional, it is just reality, is to isolate us from the struggles of others. Now, the way that we make sure to avoid that, it seems to me, is always going to take intentionality. Sometimes it's the intentionality of those who are struggling. In this case, it's Mordecai, right? Esther, if not for Mordecai, she would have just stayed there and had no idea what was happening. But Mordecai comes and he interrupts her life. He intrudes into her life, right? She, he does not allow her to just live in her safe spot. And there are times when those who are struggling and in pain, they intrude into our lives and they do not allow us to stay in our safe, comfortable spot, right? I had this occur right before I went to sabbatical. You know, we were, we're trying to kind of figure out how do we minister, how do we, how do we love and care for and be in relationship with those in the Crooked Creek area is what, we're, uh, is what the area is called. It's down around Michigan and 71st and then further south and east. And, uh, you know, this is an area... Um, 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 that we kind of feel called to kind of love and care and, and see what, what, what we might do there. It's the reason why we're doing this, uh, um, this program, this event that we're doing here in a couple of weeks, three weeks or so. And so we were with a group of people, Pastor Scott and I were, and there was somebody there, uh, and she asked me a question as we were kind of talking about this, um, and it wasn't a ZPC, or, and it was kind of offensive to me. I'm not going to say what the exact sec, uh, question was, because it was kind of offensive to the church as well. I didn't like it. But, you know, I, I'm a pastor, you know, and, and so when I get offended at things like this, you know, I, I, I can't just do what, what, what Jerry really wants to do, right, which, which is to say something back. I mean, you can feel, you know, when someone makes you defensive, you can kind of feel the hair on the back of your neck, and you can just kind of, I don't know, if you're like me, you just kind of clinch up, right? And so, so I do that too, right? But I'm just like, oh, bless you. 
tried to play it cool, but it was really frustrating. But then, you know, as the day went on, one of the things I realized is as frustrating as it was, it was agitating me. And a part of the reason why it was agitating me is because what she had said was that there was some truth in what she had said. And I needed to hear the voice of somebody else in my life to make me think, wow, I had not really thought about kind of my own struggles with this and the ways in which I need to do a better job of caring for those who have less. And so there are times when those people intrude, and oftentimes we don't like it. But just because something makes you mad doesn't make you right. But of course, as followers of Jesus, we also believe that we don't just sit around and wait. I'm going to wait for someone else to intrude. We also believe that we need to go out. Right, That we need to make sure that we are always going out. This is a part of the reason, again, for the Crooked Creek partnership that we're wanting. Right, We want to go out like in this event. We want to go and be a part of these things because we realize right, that, 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 that we need to not just isolate ourselves. Right? And that's what we want to do. We want to do this event. But we want to do a whole relationship. You know? And one of the things that, you, that many of you know is that we're partnering with Youth for Christ uh, and City Life. Uh, and, and we're paying half the money uh, for, a for a staff member. They're going to pay half the money. Money for a staff member who's going to help us to build relationships, right? And I've been talking, we, we, we probably made this announcement a year or a year and a half ago. You like who we've hired? It's nobody. It's been a real struggle, honestly. You know, two of the things that are really hard right now in COVID are building buildings. That food pantry, don't even look at it. It's coming. And building staff. It's really hard. It's a struggle. But the reality, of course, is that we are going to continue to do that. We are going to continue to say we are going to find somebody. We just had a meeting two weeks ago uh, with the new director of Youth for Christ. Say, okay, here we go. We're going at this again. We are not going to relent. Why? Because we believe it is critical to who we are to not simply be isolated because of what we have been given but rather to go out and to invest. But here's, what I, here's one of the things I love about this passage that it points out, which is that it is not easy. I don't know if you heard this. I probably didn't read it in the right kind of way. But I don't know if you, if you kind of saw what it was like for those who were outside, in this case Mordecai, to be able, and those who were inside, in this case Esther. Did you, did you hear what all it took for them to be able to even communicate and find out what's going on? Mordecai's out there, outside the walls. And he's doing all these things, sackcloth and ashes. And so there are people who then say, oh, no, there's Mordecai. He knows Esther. He goes in and tells Esther. And Esther says, oh, no, go tell him, go, go give him some clothes. And so she goes and gives him some clothes. And Mordecai says, no, I don't want these stinking clothes. And so they have to go back and say, he doesn't want those stinking clothes. And then she says, well, tell me what's going on. And so, so they have to go back and tell Mordecai, here's what's going on. Mordecai, or what's going on. Mordecai says, okay, well, here, tell what's going on. And she says, oh, well, you know what? I can't simply just go there. You got the king and all these things. Oh, no. So she sends that back. And so someone has to run back over there and say, oh. Mordecai, here's what he says. You know, this is what she says. And Mordecai said, oh, yeah, she can't get off scot-free like that. Go tell her I said that. So he runs back and he has to say that. And then, and then, and, and then it just says, okay, well, now you tell him this. And then she has to run back and tell him this. Do you see this? It is exhausting. I need a seat. And I love that. Because you see, too often what we want is we want to be able to minister to folks that are different than us. We want to learn and be able to love and care for them. But we want it to be easy. We want it to be a project that we do, check off and move on. 
But anytime you decide we are not going to live in isolation, we refuse to simply be happy with what we have and never reach out and never branch out, that it is always going to cost us something. It is always going to take much longer than you want. It is almost always going to be something that makes us weary at times and makes us want to give up. But we have to realize the call of the church is always to put ourselves in positions of vulnerability where we are forced to be mindful of the world around us. And in the midst of all of that exhaustion, Mordecai tells Esther the exact situation. And Esther, and I love this, Esther, she's almost getting kind of sharp with him in some way. She says, you know... (laughs) Everyone knows. Don't you hear this a little bit? I, we, uh, oh, I'm not going to say that because my daughter is right here. So, you know, at times it is easy to just say these things, right? Everyone knows, you idiot. Everyone knows, Morty, that if I just walk in there, I will be dead unless... Unless the king holds up the golden scepter. And let me be very clear about this, Mordecai. The king has not called me in 30 days. In other words, I have no idea what kind of relationship we have. I have no idea how he's feeling right now. And you know how temperamental this king can be. And there are people who get upset with Esther and say, oh, she's a coward. And I think, oh, she probably just wants to live. It feels pretty normal. And I'm deeply appreciative of of stories like this in our scripture because they are so full of truth. Who of us would just simply say, oh, okay, no problem. Very few of any of us. When you follow God, there is almost always a wrestling. There is almost always questions and answers and, 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 and saying things and, you know, that, that maybe you shouldn't even say, but that you just say. There's all of this, and it is incredibly true, and I am deeply appreciative of books like Esther and others in Scripture that are just so transparent to the realities of our lives and what it looks like to follow God. Now, I also love Mordecai. Because Mordecai is also, he just kind of says, oh, fine, you don't have to do anything. But if you don't do anything, you can die now or you can die later. But you're going to die. And there's this great kind of refreshment that then leads, of honesty that then leads to what is by far the most famous line in all of Esther. You know the line likely, right? Who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. We know this, we oftentimes hear this, right? For such a time as this. And that is a really important part of the story. It's important, right, because it helps us to understand that we have a plan and that God, or excuse me, that God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And that can be incredibly important. It is important for all of us. Because it can breathe life into your life to know that you aren't just kind of here willy-nilly. No, 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 no. That God has created you because God loves you and because God has a plan for you. 
I've told you all this before. It was about six years ago, if you remember it. The story of, I looked it up, the story of, of uh, the first church I served in the Chicago area. When I went there, it was, it was a struggling church. Uh, um, about between 30, uh, that first summer, probably between like 35 and 45 in worship on a Sunday morning. Uh, I remember it well. There was no air conditioning in the sanctuary. And I, at that point, I was wearing a whole robe and a stole. I know some of you wish we could bring that back. And so it was just, it was all this. And I can remember going back and sitting in the office and just, I mean, I was just drenched with sweat and I was just thinking I clearly did not hear from God this is a nightmare I cannot believe that I am here and a part of that reason was not just because of me but because people were just there just kind of there was a slight depression to the congregation right there was a slight sense of is there any hope for us anymore right and and on, and on Sunday mornings they would sit down and they would look out uh, uh, not in the sanctuary but out in the, the, the little gathering space that we had and and they would look out of these big windows and there was this fresh parking lot that that the high school who was right across the street had paid for uh, uh but that you know were renting uh, from us and there were all these beautiful parking spaces and there were not very many cars in them and we would just kind of look out there and nothing would happen and nothing would happen. We had two kids, remember? And basically we were paying them. They were the pianist kids. And so that's why they were there. Uh, and so it was just, it was not great, right? And so, and so we were kind of struggling. And within that first year, we didn't use this exact passage, but we used one similar to this, uh, as I recall. And, and it was really based off these two very simple questions. Why are we here and why are we here right now? We believe that God has called us as a body and we believe that God has called us as a body right now. And so we kept kind of praying that. We kept looking and wondering and we kept really looking at at that fresh parking lot. And then one Sunday, in the midst of that, we had a kid who was probably seven or eight years old at the time. His name was Austin. And he started looking through the back windows of our church. And the Sunday school teacher saw him, and she opened up the back door and said, do you want to you come in and be a part of the lesson? He said, okay. And so he did. And it began this kind of, all of a sudden, this notion, because you see, here's the thing. Austin was from the apartments, right? If this was the church, here's the fresh parking lot. Ah, oh, where are all the great Presbyterians? And behind were the apartment complex, right? And these were always the problem people that we would see. If anything ever broke at the church, we were always convinced it was from the people in the apartments. They looked different than us. They were poorer than us. They had different customs than us. And for the first time, all of a sudden, we began to realize that perhaps the answer to the question, why are we here, why are we here right now, was not so that we could wait for these great, perfect Presbyterians to come in who would tithe. <laughs> but was this whole complex over here. And so it just began, I don't have time to go into it, I'm not going to go into it, it, was just, it just began to actually breathe life into the congregation. And we began to see, okay, we think this is exactly why God has us. For such a time as this is really important to take seriously. But, but there is one thing that I want to point out that I honestly, I don't think I ever really paid attention to until this week. Which is that the sentence does not begin with for such a time as this. You'll see sermon series for such a time as this. You'll see wall hangings for such a time as this. Weekend retreats for such a time as this. But what you will rarely see is the sentence that comes right before it and the way that this sentence begins. Mordecai says this. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Who knows? Perhaps 
What? Who tries to get someone to risk their life by saying, who knows? Perhaps. Picture it. Picture it. This didn't happen, but what if? Three days into the fasting, there's Esther. And she's been saying, for such a time as this. For such a time as this. For such a time as this, I'm called to go there and to risk my very life for my people. For such a time as this, Mordecai said. And right before she goes in, she needs to hear it one more time. So she says to Mordecai, just tell me again, right? You said, for such a time as this, right? And Mordecai responded, who knows? Perhaps. Have you ever thought about that? We know this is not how you get people to do really scary things. You just say, oh, without question, God has called you to this. Go risk your life. You don't say, perhaps. I have been struck by that and stuck on that this whole week. We either consciously or subconsciously skip over that incredible ambiguity that you would not skip over if it was you who was about to go see the king. Most of us would be very conscious of the perhaps and the who knows. Now, why is that important? There's probably a lot of reasons that I'm not going to go into, but I'll tell you one of the most important things about never separating for such a time as this, with perhaps and who knows, which is that saying perhaps and who knows reminds us that ultimately this is about God and what God wants to do. And it requires an inordinate amount of humility. A humility that says, just like Mordecai said, we don't know for sure. We can't always be 100% clear. Which means that when we go out, because we say we've heard, we believe that we've heard from God. When you go out and you realize that you are incredibly human. This is a very reformed, very Presbyterian passage. When you go out and you realize that you don't always hear 100%. See, we oftentimes just naturally assume God must be on my side. But Mordecai here says, perhaps... And you see, it gives us a great amount of gentleness and humility when you go in. You say, I, I think this is what God's saying, but I understand that there are times when I don't hear correctly. You see, we love Micah 6.8. Do justice. Boom. Love mercy. Boom. And then we whisper the last part. Walk humbly before your God. We love to do justice. We love to love mercy. But oftentimes we lack the last part about walking humbly. And I would suggest it might just be because far too often it's passages like this where we just focus on this very important thing, which is that God has called you to be here for a reason, but also this sense that we need to realize that there are times when we will make mistakes. Which means that we walk forward, but we walk forward with gentleness. We walk forward with humility. But let me be very clear. It doesn't mean we do nothing. I've seen Christians do this as well. Well, we just, who are we to say that we understand anything about God, so we should just do nothing? Well, that's nowhere in Scripture either. 
But perhaps part of the call of the church is that as we go about doing the work of the Lord, that we do it with an abundant amount of grace and humility. Because we know that we don't always hear correctly. But it also gives us a freedom to be able to keep moving forward, knowing that everything we do will not always end perfectly. Knowing that we don't always hear correctly. Again, remember uh, Heritage, if you remember that first church that I served, you know, the very first big event that we did that we wanted to do for them, which was probably already a problem in and of itself. We wanted to have this big festival that we invited them to come over. We were going to have food. Do you remember the story? And, and the reason why we wanted to do that is because someone in our church had, been, uh, had won in a raffle or something, I don't know, a pig roast. And so we said, all right, this is going to be great. We have all this pig. We can't eat it all. There's only 30 of us. It's a big pig. And so we said, all right, great. We know. We'll, we'll send it off to the festival. But clearly, we were not listening, right, because what we were unaware of because we weren't paying attention was that many in the apartment complex, many of them were Muslim. And so if you want to make a great introduction and say, hey, I want to share the love and grace of Jesus, it is not wise to do it and say, hey, you want to have this pig. It's not wise. It's not helpful. So the next year we said, oh, okay, well, wait, we're getting a little bit smarter. We're not going to do the pig. We're going to do only things that Muslims can have because if we want to share the love and the grace of Jesus, it's not good to begin that by offending people. So we said, okay, we're not going to do that. But we didn't really check the calendar that closely. So then the next year we did it during Ramadan. So that this time, right, it was food they could eat, but it was just wafting over all day as they could just smell it but not eat any of it. We didn't quite hear but at the exact same time, here's the thing. When you go into something and you say, well, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to be idiots at times. We're not always going to hear correctly. Who knows? Perhaps. And part of it was good and part of it was ah, not good. But what we also know, when you go into it in an attitude like this, what you remember is that ultimately it is always God who's going to do the work. And God made something out of those mistakes. God always makes things out of our mistakes so that we go into it with grace, we go into it with gentleness, but we also keep going, we keep trying, we keep taking these risks because we know that ultimately it's not up to us in our perfection anyways, it's always up to God. So when Esther walks in, she's not 100% what's going to happen. But she walks in anyway. I think the call of the church is to bring these lines together. Who knows? Perhaps you have been called for such a time as this. And if we can bring these together, then who knows? Perhaps God will work through us in remarkable ways do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. For God's glory, and for God's glory alone. Amen.